Welcome to the first episode of COVID-19 Legal Briefs, supporting America's prosecutors and court system. Prosecutors' offices and court systems across the nation are being impacted by COVID-19. Their daily work to maintain constitutional justice is being uprooted, altered, and halted. CNA and the National District Attorneys Association have partnered to actively develop and disseminate useful COVID-19 response resources to prosecutors and courts to support them during this trying time. This series will address newly identified issues and innovative responses. In this first episode of COVID-19 Legal Briefs, Nelson Bunn, Executive Director of the NDAA, sat down with Christine A. Hoffman, the Acting Prosecutor of Gloucester County, New Jersey, to discuss the letter she wrote disputing the Gloucester County Court's decision to conduct domestic violence contempt trials virtually. We should note that since the taping of this interview, the Gloucester County Court has decided to conduct a pilot program in which its trials will be conducted virtually. Before we get into the brief, you and two other prosecutors in New Jersey filed, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came into the prosecution field and your current role? I've been a prosecutor for 23 years. I served in the county prosecutor's office for several years where I was able to prosecute a wide range of crimes. However, I had the opportunity to go to the New Jersey Attorney General's office, and there I became the Deputy Chief of the Major Crimes Bureau, Chief of the Corruption Bureau, and then the Deputy Director supervising all the white-collar crimes, as well as a number of statewide task force. Just recently, I was asked to fill a vacant county prosecutor seat as the pandemic began. That county is part of a vicinage, so there are two other counties with me, and all three of us agreed to file the letter together. But we provided that letter to our County Prosecutors Association, and nearly all have filed the same letter as well. Great. And, you know, states and individual jurisdictions around the country have all had varying responses to the current COVID-19 pandemic. In your case in New Jersey, you actually already had some infrastructure in place as a state to go virtual after going through bail reform a couple of years ago. Can you talk a little bit about that shift and how that has factored into your response to COVID-19? I imagine that's pretty helpful. It was. We were very, very fortunate to be in the position that we were. Our criminal justice reform was implemented statewide in January 2017. As part of this reform, we essentially eliminated our prior system that relied on setting monetary bail. In its place, we implemented a risk-based system. Defendants are only held if their release poses an unacceptable flight risk or poses a danger to the community. And to accomplish this unprecedented change, we had to establish a 24-7 on-call screening and approval system. When a decision to arrest and hold is made, that must be swiftly reviewed by our courts, including at night and on weekends. So virtual courtrooms were established, and the prosecutors and defense counsel had to obtain equipment and training on how to appear. Um, for example, we had to provide every attorney with laptops or iPads. So those resources were put in place. It was at first very difficult and a costly investment, but essentially for the past two and a half years, our criminal justice system has been able to successfully handle these initial matters virtually at all times. So for those reasons, we had an infrastructure already in place to move additional matters into the virtual realm when the pandemic hit. And as soon as our physical courtrooms closed, we expanded those matters being heard in the virtual courtrooms. 
So we've even been able to hold plea hearings and sentencings at this time. Honestly, where the struggle for us truly has been is how to handle the testimonial matters like grand jury and trials. So you mentioned uh, testimonial matters, and so I want to shift to an issue that you've recently raised with the courts related to virtual hearings. In March of this year, uh, your court issued a new order that uh, impacted virtual hearings and how you're conducting your operations. In response to that, you sent a letter notifying the court of your objection to holding domestic violence contempt trials via video conference. Specifically, and I want to cite directly from the letter you sent, you said, while these are unprecedented circumstances and the state certainly understands the need to conduct as much court business as possible, these proposed virtual trials implicate serious concerns related to the constitutional rights of defendants and victims, end of quote. What spurred you to send this letter? Well, as I'm sure many of the listeners are aware, there have been a number of concerns raised across the country as to the delay of justice with the courts closed. And to us in New Jersey, a core concept of the criminal justice reform is swift justice. And we had a number of timeframes that have been established to ensure that we are meeting guideposts and timeframes. And as a prosecutor, we have to be aware of and recognize those concerns as valid. But those speedy trial concerns do not outweigh all other rights. So while many of the matters can be heard virtually and have, in fact, been held in our state, holding testimonial matters like a domestic violence contempt trial on a virtual platform, it undermines too many other rights of both defendants and victims. This spurred us to put those concerns into writing so that the courts could fully consider what should be the right balance. And I think what's interesting in you bringing that up is, as we have uh, heard from prosecutors and other stakeholders in the field, the constitutional issues that the current pandemic raises um, are really at the forefront of a lot of stakeholders' minds. So let's dive a little more into those constitutional issues, starting with victims of domestic violence. Uh, in New Jersey, you have a victim's bill of rights at the state level. Um, from that victim's perspective, why does holding a virtual proceeding sort of negatively impact their ability to seek justice? You're correct. Our victims in New Jersey have the right to attend all proceedings under the Victim Rights Amendment to the New Jersey Constitution. And we also have a Crime Victims Bill of Rights. And that Bill of Rights statutorily grants them the right to be present at all court hearings and with as minimal inconvenience as possible to the victim. Not all domestic violence victims may have the access or tech knowledge to participate in video conferencing. Many people are out of work right now in this time, and they may not be able to afford devices or even reliable Internet access, especially true for domestic violence victims who may have been forced to walk away with no financial resources or belongings. They may be seeking shelter in a safe house or with a loved one and may not be able to view or worse, participate in the virtual trial. That also gives rise to concerns about the virtual trial, revealing clues about a victim's location. A background in the video could be highly revealing, and I really want to highlight that seriousness of that particular concern. In the beginning of our criminal justice reform, our attorneys are appearing from home, and they continue to do so. But in the beginning, they had pictures of their children, views of the outside that uh, basically would reveal their location, including even street signs and street numbers other residents, their small children walking into view. And one of our biggest fears is that a defendant or another family member may be at that location as well and influencing or pressuring the victims just off screen. 
So for all of those reasons, we had significant concerns about victims' rights. I think that's really important what you bring up about uh, sort of the periphery. It's not just the victim in question, but their loved ones and sort of their surroundings and how that all plays into it. Um, Have you seen from your perspective any issue around witness intimidation with the victim sort of maybe having loved ones or uh, uh, the abuser in that household? Have you seen any indication of that as you've dealt with these cases? Overall, in the domestic violence context, that is always an issue. It's part of the pattern of domestic violence, and it's really the core of domestic violence is is that relationship exists. And it is something that is always a concern. I don't know that we always charge witness intimidation, but we certainly have concerns about influence. You know, victims are already hesitant to go forward. So putting that into the context of now instead of being in the courtroom where we can control and view that, now they could be at home and off screen. And it very very well may be with that existing relationship, it's a complete likelihood and a serious concern for us. So I want to shift to the other constitutional rights issue that you raised in the letter you sent to your courts, and that has to do with the defendant's rights. And as you have probably heard from the field, and I know that we hear often, as the role of the prosecutor has expanded over time in their communities, I don't think sometimes at the forefront are defendants' rights. And so you raise that in your letter. In your role as a prosecutor, explain a little more about your desire to protect the defendant's rights and how the virtual proceedings in the domestic violence context in particular may jeopardize those rights. Prosecutors may be advocates, but we're different than any other advocates. The interests of justice drive us. We make our decisions based upon what is right. And while it may seem odd at first for us to be talking about defendants' rights, it does make sense when you think about prosecutors always acting in the interest of justice. And we have to speak up when something in the process or administration of justice is not right in jeopardizing the rights of anyone. And when we fail to do so, it's also at a risk. Later review of the case by appellate courts or in a post-conviction relief situation where something was wrong in the process could easily result in a reversal, even when it was something that we didn't do, but that we allowed to happen. So no matter whether you call it protecting the system or the record, we have that responsibility. And in this particular case, we were very concerned about the due process rights, right to confrontation, and right to counsel. And we can discuss those in more detail. I I welcome your questions in those areas. Let's do that because I think that's really important to highlight. So let's start with the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment protections of due process in our Constitution. Are there other specific obligations under New Jersey law in addition to the the U.S. constitutional amendments? that you must follow or maintain in this particular context? So you're right. Due process under the 5th and the 14th Amendment requires a fair adjudicative process, which also includes a formal and open hearing, which is why our court rules in New Jersey require that the trials be conducted in open court. And whether it's a constitutional requirement or own court procedures that reflect that right, The open, and I put that in air quotes, court, do not explicitly state an in-person requirement. It was probably just never contemplated. We're in an unusual time. But the cases, when you read them about due process, do suggest an in-person requirement, and there's really truly a number of reasons for those trials to be in person. 
first two reasons are related to our inability to simply see off the screen, unlike being able to view the whole inside of a courtroom. Again, we can't see if someone is off screen and out of view, coaching or influencing a witness. And as we already mentioned, this is particularly concerning in the domestic violence context, where witnesses are often friends or family. Also, we can't see if the witness is looking at documents in order to tailor their testimony to a prior statement or report, to see if they're doing some other research on the Internet, or to see if they're receiving communications from others via text or emails as the matter streams. The next reason is also related to our inability to fully assess credibility. The virtual view cuts down on the ability to see key aspects. Another reason or concern for us is just the seriousness of the occasion being lost. There is a very big difference from swearing on a Bible in open court and giving trial testimony from a witness stand while looking at others in the eye. And that's in contrast to being in the comfort of one's own home. It's just not the same feel or the same formality. And in other virtual proceedings during this pandemic, even attorneys had to be reminded about appropriate attire and demeanor being expected. That has already been an issue. We thought that we had overcome it when we went to virtual, but the pandemic has brought that again to the forefront. And the last reason overlaps with the Sixth Amendment right to confrontation. A defendant has the right to confront his accuser in person, and this requires the face-to-face -face physical confrontation of the witnesses against him or her. It's unfair to have a defendant not to be able to look someone in the eye and to have someone face the reality of their accusations. So you talked about sort of the credibility of the witness and really the courtroom as a setting and really the seriousness that that carries with it. Can you just talk a little bit more about witness credibility and the differences that may arise as a result of a virtual hearing instead of being in person? And really, how important is that actual courtroom setting to the, the function of justice in our system? I'm really glad that you asked about that because that, that aspect was something that was initially raised by our judiciary that they would be able to assess credibility even in the virtual context. But this was a particular area of interest for me because I do teach cognitive interviewing. And when you go into that discipline, facial expressions are only a small part of assessing credibility. Um, and that's what you're basically seeing on a virtual screen. But there's countless studies as to the importance of body language as a tool in assessing truthfulness. In fact, those studies say body language needs to be weighed heavily and that it's even more important than the facial expressions. And it's factors such as the eye contact, the body positioning, the movement that are all significant. And to give you just some examples of things that we would be looking for, the crossed arms, leaning in or away, wringing of hands, shaking of a foot. Those are all things that you just are not going to be able to see in a virtual realm. And even the volume and inflection of a voice can matter. You know, someone who drops uh, in volume, it suggests a lack of confidence and potential lying. And in virtual proceedings, technology can impact on that sound level and clarity of a verbal tone. All of these things together are really reducing significantly tools that are needed to truly assess someone's credibility. And in the domestic violence context, that's, that's a really key aspect because a lot of times it's a he said, she said, and it's going to come down to credibility. Absolutely. Can we drill down a little more on the right of the defendant to confront his or her accuser? 
uh, which, as you know, brings up the Sixth Amendment. Another key element of the Sixth Amendment is right to counsel. And so explain for me how these particular constitutional rights under the Sixth Amendment could be jeopardized by virtual hearings. And in our context of COVID-19 that we're all living with, how, how has it impacted these rights? In two different aspects, both the trial preparation and then the trial itself. It has been a challenge for counsel to meet with their clients. Um, we've heard a number of counsel express this issue in the virtual matters that we have been hearing, and which has prevented some matters like pleas from being held virtually, and it has been respected so far by our court. But it would be even harder to prepare for a trial. And then for trial itself, it would be impossible for counsel to be physically present with their client. They cannot consult with each other or discuss strategy as the trial progresses. They cannot explore questions for witnesses or even just lean over and say, is what that witness saying accurate? Essentially verifying the accuracy of the testimony. They just can't interact swiftly enough. And what's been proposed about hopping in and out of side meeting rooms that would be confidential is just not an effective way to conduct those types of trials. When it comes to the admission of evidence, we know how important that is at trial. And how has that been impacted by virtual hearings as opposed to in-person hearings? And for how you're conducting business, is there a system in place for you to share documentation to meet your discovery obligations as a prosecutor? Or is that still a work in progress for you as you adapt to the new environment? I'll talk about the discovery issue first. And discovery has not really been as much of an issue. Um, our county and many of the other counties have evidence.com or other cloud-based discovery systems. So our police departments are loading in the discovery, and we have the defense counsel who can access with their approved password-protected um, logins. So we're at the point where we are capable of doing it and we're not being held up by any issues with the discovery being given to us and our ability to push it out. So counsel do have most of the discovery. Really the only limitation for us has been on the real evidence itself, unless it's something already in the possession of a defendant. But the omission of what they select out of the discovery as evidence for trial is much, much more complicated. Introducing and emitting real evidence like text on a defendant's cell phone, which is common in the domestic violence context, it's just not possible to, to illustrate it or visualize it a little bit more. Think about when these trials are being held, when defense counsel says, here's the phone, Your Honor, and here's the text messages, and they scroll down and look at it. And even documents like photographs of the alleged injuries, maybe losing critical detail when emailed, um, you're not going to be able to see the level of detail and coloration, and it's simply difficult to display persuasively. Um, there's also no way to emit original evidence, for example, where a signature matters. The proposal to just email to the court and the other party in advance is not always going to be effective in the context of a Sixth Amendment right to counsel. I have heard of limited testimonial matters being heard, but what has been heard in those cases have had extremely limited evidence, and there have been comments about the difficulty of using that evidence in those situations. In our webinar that NDA and CNA held the other week on virtual and remote hearings, your colleague uh, in Cumberland County, Jennifer Webb McCray, who was fantastic on the webinar and really led us to you today on this letter that you sent to your court, but 
She highlighted the ability of the public to view hearings online by visiting the court's website, and she focused on the public's ability to view these hearings in the context of transparency and accountability for prosecutors. And you talked a little bit about open hearings earlier. So why is that so important in this context? We can't overlook the fact that the Sixth Amendment guarantees that a defendant has the right to a public trial. But it is also the right of the public in order to ensure the confidence in our courts to have that transparency and accountability. That is why court proceedings are open to the public except in the rarest of circumstances. So even if streaming to the the public, that's just not adequate. Just like victims, the members of the general public may not have access to the Internet at this time. This is a time of true crisis. With many challenges in the home for caring for a child or other loved ones, unemployment limiting resources, including Internet access, now is not the time to be holding trials that don't provide that same level of access and really can undermine the confidence in the system. Really, transparency and accountability do matter. What would you say if the argument came up of, yes, we certainly want to Um, make sure that we're meeting all of these obligations and constitutional rights of both the defendant and the victim. But we also are are nervous about the coming backlog of cases that may resume once we get to some level of normalcy. How do you balance that? What would you say to another colleague that said, hey, I'm trying to keep things moving, but yes, we also have these very important obligations to uh, make sure we're um, following through on? So what I would say is, We have been successful in keeping a great number of matters moving virtually, and what we're hoping to do going forward is to have that mix of live and virtual. And our municipal courts are tentatively reopening at the end of May, and it will be that type of mix. Our assignment judge consulted with me, Jennifer Webb McRae, and our third counterpart in the vicinage, and we supported that decision. The live aspect will be reserved for trials and other matters that just shouldn't be virtual. But everything else will be virtual, including all the first appearances. And our role is to have the police officers utilize a simple form that we help to design and to collect the email and cell phones for the court use to initiate virtual proceedings. We've had some preliminary discussions regarding our superior court that have suggested that similar type of design, that mix of live, what we really need to handle in the courtroom and virtual. And we truly hope to avoid the issues that we discussed with the constitutional challenges and really avoid those possible appellate and post-conviction issues that we would be faced with for years to come. And even worse, after the pandemic has passed, so that sense of urgency and why we did something may very well be forgotten. Um, So really for us, the core is to be able to continue to push what we absolutely can virtually and only reserve our, our invaluable time and access to the courthouse for the things that we really, truly can only handle live, like the trials, and to develop ways to both socially distance and to be able to have that type of form. Um, One of the challenges with some of the virtual hearings of matters that were already in progress have been just to be able to find the defendant and to initiate those calls. That's what that form was designed to do. So what I would challenge my colleagues to do in these situations is to find those alternatives to take the pressure off the system, but to reserve what you can for the things that would just be 
to jeopardizing of someone's constitutional rights. So before I move into our last few questions that sort of go from the weeds to a, a more of a 50,000-foot level, you may laugh at this question, but one thing that our listeners may be thinking about is, what is a vicinage, and how does it impact your work? You've mentioned a couple of times the three-county vicinage, and other states are maybe wondering, well, what does that mean, and how does that impact what you're doing? So I thought since you just mentioned it again, it may be helpful for you just to say a word about that. Absolutely. Our court structure is we have a statewide superior court system. Um, they answer to the administrative office of the court, so we do get statewide direction, but it is broken down into vicinages. Some of them are large enough that they encompass a single county. Um, I live in a more rural area, so the three counties in our vicinage have smaller dockets and are more rural, and um, for that reason, we have a vicinage structure where we report and collaborate together between the three counties. Great. Well, thanks for shedding some light on that. I know I personally had that question as well. So beyond your own individual opposition to virtual hearings in the domestic violence context, I want to shift to sort of the broader community and criminal justice system stakeholders as a whole. When you were objecting to these, did you collaborate with any other stakeholders? And if so, what did that conversation look like and how did it go? We did speak with a number of defense counsel. Many of them agreed to jointly object on the grounds that we set forth on our letter. Before we formally had submitted that, we had shared our reasoning to, with those defense counsel, and they were concerned about their clients and not providing ineffective assistance of counsel. And we also requested that the New Jersey Attorney General's Office speak with our administrative office at the court, which I just referenced before, which would give statewide direction. We have not really received as much direct guidance as that we would have hoped for, but the counties that were being pushed to proceed to trial over objections have essentially backed down and adjourned the trials farther out into June, and that's where our conversations about having that mix of live and virtual are really uh, coming into play at this time. And something that I probably should have said before was we don't disagree with the trial listings because the reality is, is many cases do plead when they're listed for trial, and it does help keep the docket moving. But when it's clear that it must be a trial, that, that's when we're asking for those adjournments farther out. And we are concerned as to what will happen if we don't get the live proceedings back up in the foreseeable future, but that does look realistic to us, particularly as we work through broadening up and counterbalancing that and keeping the dockets moving with the virtual matters. So you've done a great job of really painting a picture for us about the present situation that you're in. So I want to shift quickly to a focus on the future. Given the concerns that you have about virtual hearings in the domestic violence context and this shift to virtual hearings that we're seeing across the board, where do we go from here? Are there decisions being made now that will have potential consequences down the road in maybe the appellate or post-conviction setting? Absolutely. That is one of our biggest concerns is to ensure that we carefully select out which matters that we reserve for virtual versus which ones we reserve for live. And again, it's going to that balance, the balance of rights, the balance of virtual and live, and making sure that we find that right mix. Because if we don't, we will be faced with the consequences for years to come with challenges. 
Um, the last thing any of us want to do is to hold a trial just to have it come back, particularly in a domestic violence context where a victim is already traumatized. To have to redo it, it's just not fair. That makes complete sense, and we often focus on re-traumatization and re-victimization and ways that we can avoid that, so um, I'm really glad that you made that point. We keep hearing from the field, and this is a question that came up on a past webinar that we held, but we keep hearing from the field, what about grand juries? How are these going to work in the future, if at all? And are there aspects of the grand juries that can occur in the future? Are they viable? You sort of talked about um, this mix of virtual and in-person in the future and understanding which components fall into which category and making sure that we're protecting rights in various contexts, which is so important and valuable. So are grand juries going to be viable, do you think? And are there aspects of it that may be able to be done in this sort of hybrid model that you've discussed? Grand juries have really become the hot topic and honestly probably the the biggest battleground in our state on that mix of live and virtual. The judiciary or our administrative office of courts has proposed a virtual grand jury, but that's something that all of our county prosecutors, all 21 of us, have voted to stand against and have proposed a different alternative of the socially distanced grand jury whether it's in a courthouse that's big enough to hold a socially distanced room or an off-site location. And the reason why we had that objection was we had serious concerns as to secrecy and due process issues created, again, by that inability to see who is in the room or can otherwise be accessing the video conference platform, potential disparity issues by excluding those without technology, most likely those in poorer communities that would also include minorities, and even just technological issues like what to do when a grand juror loses connectivity temporarily? Do they get to sit on the vote? So we're going to have to see what happens as to the final decision and which way our state's going to go. We have been in contact with our federal counterparts, and we're somewhat hoping that they will set a standard soon. In our discussions with both the District of New Jersey and our neighboring Southern District of New York, their intent is to go with a socially distanced grand jury, and they're in the final stages and about to implement. Um, and some of that's been driven by different size options, and I just want to briefly briefly talk about that so others can consider that. One holds the grand jury inside their courthouse where they also sit. They don't have a big enough space, but what they do have is three conference rooms that they plan to link by a closed-circuit video. Another one has enough space, they believe, in their courthouse, so they're looking at the ceremonial courtroom and simply disabling the uh, circuit television where it would be viewable by others in the courthouse. Another location doesn't have either option, so they're considering a gym or an auditorium in the area. We did do some research. We did look for other jurisdictions. It does appear that Texas and Oregon have been able to do socially distanced grand juries as well, some in the courthouse, some in other locations. So we do believe that there is the possibility and the options of doing it appropriately with a socially distanced grand jury. And the, the true value of that is it doesn't raise some of the concerns that the virtual grand juries do, and it's more akin to a traditional approach towards the grand juries and to what we already know. So rules, statutes, uh, scripts, charges don't really have to be redone. So we'll have to keep you posted as to what decisions we ultimately make. 
whatever we choose to do, we have been told that it will be done on a pilot basis to ensure that we are taking everything into account. Well, Christine, this has just been so valuable, and you've provided a lot of great insight for our listeners, and we just appreciate your time. So, you know, on behalf of NBAA and CNA, thank you for joining us for this conversation today. And who knows, we may reach out so you can keep us posted because this is very interesting and a lot of good information that I'm sure so many jurisdictions are debating right now. And so you may be a test case moving forward for a lot of other jurisdictions. So thank you for your time. Thank you for what you're doing in your jurisdiction and for all of your efforts to keep your community safe. Thank you for the opportunity, and I hope that it's something that will be helpful to another jurisdiction and get them on the right path that they need to. Thank you for listening to this inaugural episode of COVID-19 Legal Briefs, supporting America's prosecutors and court system. If you'd like to access the resources discussed here or other resources developed by the CNA and NDAA, please visit our website at www.ndaa.org forward slash COVID-19 or email us directly at COVID-19 underscore courts at cna.org. The views expressed here are those of the commentators and do not necessarily reflect the views of CNA or NDAA.